If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 133? Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is an incredibly short psalm. It comprises just of three verses, but yet it speaks so much to us as a church, particularly as we're steering into this season of exploring culture change. So we're going to allow that to speak into where we're at right now and perhaps what God is doing. And we don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask us to approach the Word of God a little bit differently today as we read it, particularly with the nature of what we're going to be talking about. And I wonder if you would stand with me and if we could read this together, right? Is that all right? You're looking at me as well. I've got three eyes, right? (laughs) Psalm 133, we're going to read from the English Standard Version. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Amen. Please be seated. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. When we approach this psalm, the the opening of this psalm is so bold and striking. From the get-go, the psalm summons our attention and calls us to some form of action. It opens with this loud call, behold. David is writing this psalm. He, He wants his readers to catch a vision of something. And, and in actual fact, what we've got to remind ourselves is that what we are reading here is a psalm, so it's a song. So it's not actually something that is intended to be read, but it's something that's intended to be sung. And that's even more interesting then because David's heart is that his people worship upon the truths that are contained within Psalm 133. His desire is that they would catch a vision of something incredibly profound. And as we open it today and we explore it, we we want to catch a vision of something quite profound of what God is speaking to us. And David's opening bars, they they, they grab our attention. He calls us to behold. And when you think about it, that's an interesting word to open with. He doesn't say, look, everybody. He doesn't say, hey, everyone, see. He says, behold, behold. Now, you may be thinking you're splitting hairs there, Fraser, because the word behold, it means to look and to see, but the very tone of this word carries more of a commanding action, doesn't it? Behold. Behold. It's clear that David doesn't just want us to notice something. He wants us to fix our attention on something. He wants us to fix our focus on something. He wants us to hold something in our line of vision, to set our sights upon something. And this is kind of supported when we think of that moment when John the Baptist points to Jesus at the side of the River Jordan and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He isn't just pointing to say, look, quick, before you miss it. You know that way when you're with the kids in the car and you see something out the window and you're like, look, quick, it's the sun shining over Greenock. Look, before you miss it. It's not, it's not like he's saying, just notice this, but he's saying, I want you to fix your attention on that. 
I want you to see this, to be captivated, to lay hold of this. Turn your attention to this. Set your sights on this. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the entire world. This call, behold, is like a a clarion call. It's like a commanding action. And David opens his psalm in the same way. He says, behold. What he wants us to behold is unity. He wants us to be captivated by unity. And as he writes these three short verses, these three short verses certainly help us to become captivated by and to lay hold of the significance and the beauty of unity. So let's unpack it together. The first thing that the psalmist draws our attention to is how good it is for us to function in unity. And when you read that, it feels a bit weird to say, behold, unity is good. It feels quite of a non-event, quite underwhelming. You think that as he opens with this bold clarion call like behold, you think that he would use similar strong words to back up his call and an attempt to captivate our attention. You think that when he's describing what it is that we have to behold, that he would use a better adjective to describe it, but no, he simply says, behold, unity is all right. It's it's good. And you're like, I'm not really gripped here. I think if he was trying to sell the concept of unity to us, he'd use better words, you know, strong commanding words that grasp the soul, like behold, unity is great, or unity is phenomenal, or unity is pure, dead, brilliant, stoughton. Unity is awesome. You think that he would use bolder words, but no, he says unity is good. And it seems quite underwhelming, Actually, this description is so incredibly powerful because in using this term, David points to the origin of unity. He points to the source. As we all know, because it's Christianity 101, the scripture calls out that God is good. I thought I'd have got all the time there, but that's okay. I prepared myself for it coming and it didn't come. That's all right, but we'll try it again. As we all know, because it's Christianity 101, the scripture calls out that God is good. It's dead cheesy, isn't it? (laughs) Dead cheesy. God is good. And that message is echoed throughout the pages of the Bible. We're reminded almost over and over and over that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from a father that loves us more than we could ever imagine. We're told that if our earthly fathers, though we are evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? We regularly encounter this theme in the Bible that God is a good God who gives good things and does good stuff. And if he is good, and if what he gives is good, then that means that what he gives is an extension of himself. It's a reflection of who he is. And we see this in creation. In every aspect of creation, as it was made at the command of God, he spoke creation into existence. Jesus teaches us that it's out of the overflow of the heart 
that the mouth speaks, that our speech reflects our heart. So if we then apply that to God, then we understand that His Word reflects His heart. The Word of God, that which He has spoken, that which He has revealed to us is God-breathed. It originates within His heart and it carries His very essence. In fact, it is given to us to reveal His essence, to reveal His heart, and to bring us into an understanding of His character and His nature and His will and His purpose. And in creation, we see God speaking the created realm into existence. So if he spoke into existence and it came from within his heart, then it means that that which was created is an extension of his heart. It reveals his character and his nature to us. And we know this because at every stage of the creation process, God stops, looks at what he's made, and labels it as good. And he is good. Therefore, that which he breathed out, that which he spoke into being, It carries his essence. It carries his nature and his character, and it is itself good. That which he created is an extension of who he is. It reveals to us his will and his purpose. It reveals to us what he is like. Now, we bring all of that and we apply it to Psalm 133, and we're told that unity is good. Therefore, on the basis of what we've just called out, unity originates in God. Unity is an extension of who he is, and it reveals him to us. Unity reveals his character and his nature, his will and his purpose. So when the psalmist in Psalm 133 calls unity good, what he's doing is he's pointing us to the source of unity. He's drawing our attention to the fact that unity carries, conveys, and contains the very essence of God. Which means that in moments of unity, we find the traits and the hallmarks of God. Within the dynamics and the culture of unity, we find the revelation of who he is because unity carries his essence and it conveys his heart. And unity is therefore essential for building a culture around the presence of God. So with all of this in mind, David calls to us and he says, behold this. Get a vision of this. Be captivated by this. Get a hold of this and let it get a hold of you. Unity is rooted in God. It carries his essence and his nature. Unity is good, he tells us. However, he then takes it a step even further because he tells us that not only is unity good, but it's also pleasant. Now, the Hebrew word for pleasant means pleasant, delightful, pleasure, sweet, lovely, agreeable, the psalm would have been written in that original language and translated into English. So from time to time, we go back and we look at the word that's used and its meaning. And I think what's been conveyed here to us is that unity is an experience. It's not a label. It's not a doctrine. It's not a belief. It's an experience. Because pleasure is an experience. One of the words, one of the meanings of pleasant, one of the words that's used to describe unity is linked to pleasure. And pleasure is an experience. It's an incredibly positive experience. And it's an experience that involves and invokes our senses. So to describe something as delightful or sweet or pleasant suggests to us that taste and sound and smell and touch and sight are all involved to deem something as being as such. And if unity is described that way, then it must mean that unity is something to be experienced. And it's a positive experience. And this leads into the fact that we're told it's found when brothers dwell together. Now, we ignore the masculine term 
because it wasn't intended to be specific and applicable only to men. It's applicable to all. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Rather, the word that we focus on is the word dwell. And the term dwell is such a rich word. It means more than just to live somewhere. To live somewhere is to have your house in a specific location, but what the psalm describes to us here is something much, much deeper and much, much richer than that. Again, we lean into the Hebrew to help us out, and the Hebrew word for dwell means to dwell, remain, sit, abide, and even in some places, it means to settle and to marry. So dwelling is about living, but it's about living in a particular way. If we draw from the meaning remaining and abiding, and even if we draw from the settling and marrying meaning, then it's about more than just where you have a house. It's about the way that you live your life. It's about a lifestyle. Unity is somewhere that we're called to dwell. Unity is about living in a particular way. It's not an event. It's not even a state of being. It's an approach to life. Unity is a lifestyle. And as we call that out, we have to recognize that unity is not a state of being. And that's important because often in church circles, we confuse it as that, or we even present it as that. But that's not unity, that's uniformity. Uniformity is when we all exist the same. Uniformity is when we all look the same, sound the same, believe the same, behave the same, speak the same. It's when we all adopt the same state of being. That's not unity, that's uniformity. And folks, that's not church, that's cult. Run from anything and anyone that tries to enforce a particular state of being because it's not of God. We're not called to uniformity. We're called to unity. We are all distinct. We're all made different. We all have different characters, different natures, different worldviews, different outlooks and perspectives, different approaches of things. We are all different by design, but yet we are all called to a common unity, and that common unity is only found in God. In fact, we can take that even further, and we can say that uniformity is the product of man, but unity is the product of God. We can illustrate that. We've all seen those trees that grow in the ground of fancy hotels or country estates or posh parks, you know, like in Mulgai, that kind of place. You know the ones that all look the same? They're all the same size, the same height, the same shape, the same color. They all serve the same purpose. They're there for eye candy. I identify with the trees. These trees are uniform. And the reason that they're uniform is because they've been cut that way. They've been shaped that way. They've been manipulated to look the same. Their uniformity is man-made. However, take a group of trees that have been left untouched, and they grow side by side with different shapes, different sizes, different colors, producing different fruits, serving different purposes within agriculture and wildlife. These trees are growing the way that nature intended, or we would say the way that God intended and the way that he designed. But here's the thing. Although these trees are all very different, they are planted in the same ground. 
They are drawing the same nutrients. They are relying on the same sun. They are drawing from the same rain in order to grow and in order to be what they're meant to be. They all grow differently. They all produce differently. They all appear different, but they all rely on the same sources to grow within their differences. That is unity. And this is a brilliant picture of the unity that God calls us to because as humans and as believers, we are all different, different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different personalities, different characters, different natures. We each produce different fruit with the different talents, skills, and abilities that we have. We serve different purposes in life with our different gifts and our different callings, but we all rely on the same source. We are all rooted in God. We all draw from the same spirit. We're all shaped by the same word of God, but yet we're all shaped differently by the same word of God. We're all called by the same Lord. We all serve the same kingdom, but we are all completely different. And when we get saved and put our faith in him, God doesn't call us to start looking the same, behaving the same, sounding the same, speaking the same, because he doesn't call us to uniformity. He calls us to unity. He calls us to grow side by side, growing within our individuality whilst rooted and grounded in the same God who is shaping our divinely designed uniqueness. Unity is, therefore, a lifestyle. It really is an approach to life because it's to make a choice. It's to choose to grow side by side with people who are different from us and recognizing that although they are different, they are rooted and grounded in the same God as us. Unity is all about coming alongside one another, drawing from God together, encouraging each other to grow in our individuality. Unity is about celebrating our diversity, cheering each other on, encouraging each other to pursue our individual life shape and our unique life calling. Unity involves applauding then the different shapes, sizes, colors, and dimensions within our gatherings, within our family, within our different expressions of life, and making the choice that goes along with that. The choice to see the hand and the design of God and the signature of God within one another. And that's a big choice. Yes, there might be different outworkings of God within different lives, but it's the same God at work within each one. And if we can recognize that in each other, if we can recognize, yeah, we're all different, but I recognize the signature of God. I recognize the handiwork of God. If we can recognize that in one another, we have unity, my friends. This is a lifestyle. It is without a doubt adopting an approach to life, and it is intimate. Come alongside and we grow alongside people that are different to us. That's quite intimate. And in many senses, then, it is like marriage. Because choosing to pursue unity is to choose to pursue coming together with unique and different characters and coming alongside them to explore the one story together, the story that God is unfolding on planet Earth in our time and our generation. And much like unity, or much like marriage, sorry, unity is an experience, but it's also a choice. It's about choosing to live and do this lifestyle each and every day and in each and every way. And as we call that out, I just need to recognize that the greatest choice I ever made was pledging to live my life with my beautiful wife. And in the same way, we need to make the choice every single day 
to live in love with one another, to live in unity together. Love you, Susan. The psalm continues to explain this to us and to tell us what this lifestyle is like. It says this. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. In these verses, the psalmist uses words to paint a picture of the experience that is found within the culture of unity. And there's a few things that we draw from these two verses. The first is this. Unity releases the anointing. As the psalmist talks about oil being poured out, what he's talking about here is a discre- or what he's describing is an anointing moment. When we read of moments in Scripture when people or things are anointed, what we read happening in those moments is of something supernatural invading and superseding the natural. The anointing oil in Scripture times was and still is today symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The anointing oil is the symbol of the Holy Spirit empowering, enveloping, overshadowing a thing or overshadowing a person. And it's almost like that which is anointed sees the Holy Spirit becoming an incubating influence in shaping their life and existence. We see this in biblical examples of people being anointed. David was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, and it says of that moment that Samuel took the horn of oil anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David is anointed with oil. And we're told that this anointing in the natural brought the supernatural empowering and overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And that overshadowing bit is quite important because the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit was not only seen in this moment, but we're told from that day onwards, the Holy Spirit was like an incubating force that shaped and guided and directed his life. The same is seen again in Luke's gospel as Gabriel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow her. The Spirit was coming upon her life, the angel said. The natural invading the supernatural to overshadow and envelop and incubate the life and the purpose of God that was being released within her. This overshadowing, this anointing then leads to the brooding of the Spirit. And unity, we're told in the psalm, is like the anointing. Therefore, we can conclude that unity cultivates the brooding of the Spirit, which means that where there is unity, we not only find the ministry and activity of the Spirit, but actually we find the incubating influence of the Holy Spirit. Moments of unity, he begins to direct life. He begins to incubate the purpose of God. What does that look like? Well, we continue to explore the concept of unity being like oil poured out. And when we look through the Old Testament, we can see that oil was actually used in a variety of contexts and for a variety of reasons. One of the main uses was cooking. In the Mediterranean areas, still is the case today, people tended to use oil in place of butter. Food was fried in oil. Oil was used as a dressing. It was even baked into breads. Mediterranean food was very much oil-based that was used in cooking. But it was also used to provide light. Scriptural times, lamps were made of clay. They were filled with oil, which was used to fuel the flame and to keep the flame alight and therefore to provide light. So it was the oil in the lamp that brought light. No oil in your lampy meant no lighty. 
And hence why we sing the song, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Let's hope we don't sing that anytime soon. Oil was used for light, but oil was also used for medicinal purposes. Oil was revered for its healing properties. It was lavished on wounds and cuts in order to bring healing. If you remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're told how the Samaritan bandaged the man's wounds, pouring oil on them because oil had healing qualities. The same in Psalm 23 where it says, he anoints my head with oil. The idea is of the shepherd bringing the sheep into the pen, drawing some water for it to drink, examining its head for wounds and pouring oil on the head to bring healing if there was any wounds. Oil was used for medicinal purposes. It was also used in cosmetics. Oil was rubbed into the skin like a moisturizer. When the skin had dried out from the sun, the moisture of the skin was replenished through the application of oil and the appearance of oil on the skin was therefore regarded as a sign of success and a sign of happiness and a sign of joy. And if you remember in times of mourning, people actually refrained from putting oil on and put sackcloth on instead and rubbed ashes into their faces. And this is why we're told in Isaiah, one of the things that God does is he gives to us the oil of gladness because oil was linked to cosmetic use. And lastly, oil was also used in conflict. Warriors had shields that had a leather covering over the front. Oil was rubbed into the shield to keep the leather supple and also, believe it or not, to extinguish flaming arrows. Now, when we call all of that out, the question we ask is, right, what's all this got to do with anointing? But as we mentioned in the Old Testament, when God wanted to set someone apart for a purpose, he tended to instruct them to be anointed with oil. Now, given what oil was used for in Scripture, it helps us to understand further the symbolism of the anointing. When someone was anointed by God, it was a sign that through this individual, God wanted to enlighten, he wanted to heal, he wanted to relieve, God wanted to bring joy and gladness, he wanted to bring success and victory, he wanted to nourish and feed and lead his people. And when we bring all of that into our understanding of, a, of unity, when we understand that unity releases the anointing, we begin to discover then the experience that is found within the culture of unity. In moments of unity, the Holy Spirit begins to breathe. The Holy Spirit begins to incubate life. He begins to, to release His power to anoint that culture's function that those within moments of marked unity, that the ministry of the Spirit is released to them and we begin to see healing and joy and gladness and light piercing the darkness and nourishment for the soul and victory and deliverance. The culture of unity carries the potential for the supernatural. Because unity is good. It's a reflection of who he is. It's an extension of his character and his nature. It conveys and it carries his very essence. So when we step into a culture of unity, we should expect to see the very essence of God invading that moment, revealing his attributes, demonstrating who he is and what he's like. We should expect the supernatural. Now you might be thinking, hang on a minute, Fraser. The psalmist only said that unity was like the anointing. It doesn't say that unity releases the anointing. So where do we get that from? Well, look again at the anointing that unity is linked to. It's linked to the anointing of Aaron or Aaron, depending on which side of the city you're from. It's linked to the anointing of Aaron and it is his beard that is mentioned in this anointing analogy. So we have to assume that it's his anointing 
that has been referred to here. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the first high priest. And his anointing was an anointing to prepare him for the most holy place. It was an anointing to prepare him to exist and reside in the manifest presence of God within God's glory. And here then is a powerful revelation. Where there is unity, the Holy Spirit's incubating influence gets to work to prepare that culture and that moment for glory. When we come together united in Christ, celebrating diversity, championing our differences, we can be sure of this. The Holy Spirit is breathing life into such a moment, and He's preparing the atmosphere and the environment and the culture for the display and manifestation of God's glory. He's preparing together moments for the presence of God. And unity, therefore, transforms insignificance into significance. It takes something small and it makes it great. Unity takes something small and insignificant, like a group of people just getting together. And it transforms that group of people getting together into something profoundly significant. It turns it into a landing pad for glory. Samus tells us that moments of unity are as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, I know what you're thinking. What's Pee Wee Herman got to do with all this stuff? But actually, Herman that is mentioned here, Herman was the biggest and greatest of mountains in the Sinai Peninsula. In fact, it was bigger and greater than Zion. And yet we're told that unity is like the Jew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. It's like the Jew from the bigger mountain falling on the smaller mountain. And I think what the psalmist is presenting to us here in this big mountain, small mountain analogy is that in the culture of unity, God does something bigger than your current structure and than your current existence. In unity, God saturates and refreshes with life. In unity, God begins to change shape and structure. He begins to stretch capacity. He begins to release that which is bigger than us and greater than us. Unity leads to the overflow. In unity, God floods his people and floods his environments with his presence. And therefore, it leads to revival and it leads to reformation. Unity is a foundation stone for revival and reformation. It is the foundation for change because within unity, God does something so significant. We're told there, the Lord commands the blessing, life evermore. God blesses unity. Unity releases and realizes the blessing of God. And if unity releases blessing, then we could take that conversely and say that division and disunity brings curse. So that means then that if we want to live in the blessing of God, we need to pursue unity. But equally, that pursuit of unity means that we need to avoid that which causes division and disunity. That's quite important because often we get the feeling that pursuing unity is all this lovey-dovey, holding hands with everybody type approach. But the hard truth is that in order to live in and pursue unity, there are moments and times when we need to avoid and distance ourselves from that and those that cause division and from that and those that cause disunity. We are not, we're protecting unity by doing that. 
Sometimes, you know, folk can say, how, how can you pursue unity if you're keeping a distance from someone or not getting involved in something or keeping a distance from another ministry or another approach or something? It's like, because at times, to protect unity, we need to distance ourselves from that which brings division. However, look again at the description of blessing in the psalm. We've read from the English Standard Version today, but the NIV version says, there the Lord commands His blessing. This is important as we bring all of this into land. This speaks here about His blessing. It's not just blessing generically, it is the blessing of God. And this leads us to an important piece of Scripture, which we've mentioned before in number six. And in Numbers, God is speaking to Moses about the system of worship and the religious practice that God wants to institute amongst the the Israelite people. He talks about the sacrificial system and he talks about the priesthood and how all of that is to operate. And he says of the priest, this is how you are to bless my people. This is how you are to release blessing. And look at what he says. He says, the Lord spoke to him saying, speak to Aaron, Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. There's an interesting thing here where blessing has been released from the priests and then there's a moment in which God says, if you bless this way, I will invade that moment of blessing. Now we've looked at this before, but what God says here is massive. He says, here's what happens when your priests speak blessing. I will bless them. And he says, as well as that, I will put my name on them. And this is significant because the scripture teaches us that where God stamps his name, he shows up. The place of his name is the place of his manifest presence. Why? Because in scripture, a name carried a description of the person's character and nature. It was a revelation of their attributes of who they were. God's glory is that which carries a revelation of his character and his nature, his attributes, his being. And that is why we see that where there's a revelation of God's character and nature, where there's a revelation of his name, there is also the manifestation of his presence. See examples in the scripture, in the tabernacle, God repeatedly says, build the tabernacle in the place that I choose to put my name. He says, build the habitation for the manifest presence of God. The glory of God on earth is going to be found in the place that I choose to put my name. Moses on the mountain in Exodus says to God, show me your glory. And the Lord passes by declaring his name. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in love and graciousness and compassion. He brings a declaration of his name, we're told. He brings a declaration of his character and his nature. Bring into the New Testament. Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, who is it you're looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And the scripture says, suddenly they all fell over. Was it because they lost their footing? No, it's because in that moment, as there was a declaration of who Christ was, the glory of God invaded that moment. Where there is a, a manifestation, or where there is a declaration of his name, there is the manifestation of his presence. And we understand then that the release of his blessing, according to numbers, equals the stamping of his name and the manifestation of his glory. Unity causes God to release his blessing. 
He blesses unity. He blesses cultures of unity. And cultures of unity are those that he chooses to place his name and within which he chooses to manifest his presence because they are an extension of who he is. They carry his very essence. They reveal his character and his nature. So he invades moments of, of unity with his glory. The culture of unity releases the atmosphere of God. However, it's important that we recognize that it's within the culture of unity that God commands his blessing. This is my final point. The commanding bit is quite important. And it's quite important in relation to unity and blessing because it shows us that the interaction of God isn't transactional. It's not that a culture of unity just triggers a blessing to be automatically released. That it's like, if this happens, that happens. If these conditions take place, then automatically this is triggered. This isn't transactional. It's intentional. God commands it. Which means he intentionally manifests within unity. He chooses to reveal himself within cultures that are marked by unity because he commands the blessing, which means he verbalizes it, he speaks it, he releases it in the same way that he commanded creation and announced it was good. So he commands blessing within the environment that reflects his essence, an environment that he calls good and pleasant. See, within the culture of unity, God speaks. As well as the ministry of the Spirit, we find the ministration of his word, the announcement of his voice, the prophetic revelation of his heart. The culture of unity is one within which then there is the union of the word and the union of the spirit and that's when we find glory. Where there is the balance, where there is that union of the word and the spirit, that's when glory happens. So David says to us, behold, how good and how pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity he says, behold, get a hold of this. Fix your eyes on this. Set your focus on this. Hold this in your line of vision. In fact, make this your vision. You need to pursue unity in order to pursue God. Church, in this culture-shaping moment, as we have permissioned him to begin to shape culture, there is something quite intentional that God is speaking to us in this moment, which is to tell us as we've handed the church back to him, and we did that so profoundly last Sunday, as we handed that back to him, he is calling us to pursue unity together. He's calling us to that place where together we embrace what he is doing, where as one we move forward into what he is doing because there is no glory without the unity of his people. When we embrace unity, it takes something small and insignificant and makes it great. But the point that we come to this morning that I think perhaps God is calling us to is to recognize that unity is a choice. And if unity is a choice, then as a church we need to choose it. And I know these things are a bit weird, but over the last number of weeks there has been moments in which we have together as a people been making choices for the now moment of the church and for the next part of the journey of the church where we have been permissioning together. And this morning I think 
God calls us to make a further choice to choose unity to choose to grow together alongside people that are different to us to be willing to recognize the signature of God in one another to call out the handiwork of God in each other to choose unity there's a choice that comes before that that is the individual choice before together we make a decision for unity we have to make a choice individually and the individual choice is to choose to put down our roots and grow alongside one another and this is a dangerous call I'm about to make but it's one I think God is asking I think this morning God is asking us to choose Glasgow Elam. Not because Glasgow Elam is something and we never put church above God or anything like that. But I think what he's saying is it's time now to choose Glasgow Elam and say, this is my choice. Come rain, hail or shine. I'm putting my roots down and I'm growing alongside brothers and sisters in Christ here. I'm making the choice that this is where he is planting me. This is where God is calling me. And therefore, although it might look different to what I expect, although the journey might be different, although the people around about me might be different, I'm making a choice today. I'm putting my roots down. And I just sense that one of the things that God wanted to say today is, to some of us, it's time to take your running shoes off. It's time to take your running shoes off put your roots down, be planted and flourish. Two choices are made today, one individually and one corporately. And I realize if you're a visitor or you're here checking us out, we're not expecting you to make this choice today because it might take time before you hear God speak this to you. But for the rest of us, God asks us, will you choose Glasgow? Will you choose to put your roots down? I wonder if we could bow our heads.